Welcome to Parkwood, at least for 30 more days, and then it'll be welcome to Battleground. It's good to see everybody together. I've been so used to preaching twice, I didn't know what to do with myself this morning. I didn't, I didn't know whether to preach to myself at 9.30 or what, but it's good to see everybody together. It's just what we wanted as we, as we moved to, to be in our local church here. And so if you're a guest with us or if you're new with us, this is a little bit different of what we're doing for the next month. We, we normally pick books of the Bible and sections of Scripture and study it just a verse at a time. And But what we're doing is looking at our vision and purpose of Battleground Community. We've come Christ-exalting worship as we grow together in biblical community while going with the gospel to all peoples. And so we've been saying, where do we get that? Do we just write it on a whiteboard and say, ah, that looks good? Or No, no, we've got it from Scripture. And so what I wanted to do is, is take two weeks and simply for us to say, what do we see in the Bible? It's a good way to study your Bible. Matter of fact, I, I talked to uh, Roger, and he was talking about one of the ways that Buffy and they, some ladies study the Bible is they just read the, a section of Scripture and say, what does it say? That's, that's really what we're doing this morning. We're doing more of a survey than a sermon, but this is important. This is foundational to understand the answer to the question, what is church? And so let's, you may want to find Matthew and then find John, because we're going to be all over it this morning, and then find your way to Mark. This could have been almost any of the gospels, but I just wanted to, just picked Mark to, for a starting point for us this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 as we simply look at Jesus, it's what we're doing this morning, and in honor of his word, I'm going to look and begin Mark chapter 1 and begin with verse 14, read down to verse 20, then we'll, we'll pray and ask the Lord for his help this morning. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And believe the gospel. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. James, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Lord, this morning as we gather together, we're asking you, what is your church, Lord? Lord, we're asking you to forgive us if we have defined it. By what we want and not what you have said the church is. Oh God, help us. Because we are so comfortable in our American ideologies. That we have drifted. And so Lord, help us today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for the life of Jesus. 
who incarnated Himself and moved in beside of us. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we've been asking the question, we will ask it every week, what is the church? Last week we were in Peter, remember, and had a picture of a rock going through the desert. Remember that picture? Asked the question, if we see the church as, as more of, of, of me as an individual and we're just individual rocks. Remember the Badlands, you got that rock just moving through the desert some way or another. And we said, is this the church? We come to a place in order so that we may move through the desert of life and it gives us what we need. Peter painted another picture, you remember? He said that each one of us are living stones. That we're being built together into a cathedral. We're not individual rocks. You're not redeemed to be an individual rock. You're redeemed to be built up into a dwelling place for God. So he said the church is a redeemed community with a clear purpose. And Peter tells us our, our purpose is to declare the excellencies of him. So I want to ask that question again. I want to give you another picture this morning. Is the church just a random conversion of individuals that merely gather occasionally so that they may grow in their individual walk with the Lord? Let's be honest with each other. Most of us say, would say, well, yeah. And so here's the, here's the picture. Put the picture up. It's a little pixely. But do you see there's three horses at a, at a feeding trough? Here's the question this morning. Is this the way you see church? The church is a feeding trough. Do you see the church as a feeding trough or a family? And listen, it's important. I hope you were here today. I hope you've come to this church because you care about what you spiritually eat. It's important where we, what we eat and how we eat and what our children eat. It is important. But I'm telling you this morning, I want us to look at Scripture the next two weeks and ask us, is it possible I have got the wrong paradigm for what is the church? How are we going to do this? I just want us to look at the life of Christ today. Next week we're going to look at the life of his disciples. So let's just get the 10,000 feet view. Turn with me to John 1.14 to start with. As I want you to see our word today is intentional. That you weren't saved haphazardly. You just weren't saved by accident. You're not here as simply an haphazard individual. Jesus came with an intention. I mean, it wasn't like Mary one day says, I'm pregnant. How did this happen? <laughs> the incarnation was intentional. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the, the only Son, the Father, full of grace and truth. He came intentionally. He took on a nature, a human nature. He moved in with us intentionally for a purpose. John 17, verse 4, when he's praying, what does he say? He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
Jesus came in an intentional way for an intentional purpose. Now turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians 2, we read this last week. Remember the context of Ephesians 2? The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. Christ came, lived a perfect life, atoning death, the cross. He's helping them understand what happens when we become a believer. It says, but now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once or far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both into one what? Body. Through what? The cross. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God. What does that mean? Family. You hear what he's saying? You need to hear me today in the biblical south. It's still the most segregated day of the week on Sundays. This is what he's saying. The cross brings us together. It makes us one. One family. One family. It removes the hostility between us and God and us and each other. And so we can go back to John 1, 12 and 13. And what does it say right there at the incarnation? But to all who believed him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? The children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This was his intentional plan, the intentional life, the intentional purpose. And so what do we see? 2 Corinthians 5.17 now talks about this new family. I mean, I'm still in the introduction. Right? But this is important. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the what? Ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the what? The message of reconciliation. It's what Peter was saying. In order to fulfill your purpose, you must advertise the excellencies of God. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for God. The new family, you see, carries on the family mission. This was intentional from beginning to end. Jesus' life was not haphazard, but was intentional. He was devoted to the purpose that his father gave him to do. And he finished it. He had, listen, he had a strategy. Jesus lived life intentional. That means he had a reason he got up in the morning. He had a reason where he went to work. He had a reason of who he did, who he hung around. He had a reason for it. So listen this morning. The strategy here, I want you to see it. I'm just saying to look at scripture and see if it's true. Was to gather a redeemed community around him. Intentionally disciple him. Intentionally love him and intentionally send him on a mission all for the glory of his father. If that's true, we should see it. 
So let's look. I want you to see first from Mark, back to Mark 1, that Jesus intentionally gathers his new community, and he does it through evangelism. That's what we see him doing. Jesus came, verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God. And by the way, look at the gospel message. You see it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Remember the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the rule and reign. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ is here. Repent. And put your faith in that. When's the last time you heard that in a gospel presentation? We can't even hardly find repentance now. This was the message. Listen. A call to make a decision without repentance is not the gospel. And it has inoculated more people into cults than the church. He proclaimed the gospel through evangelism by preaching the lordship of Christ and repentance from your sin and faith in his name. That's the gospel. And it's not the gospel if it's not proclaimed. You do not live the gospel. You live the effects of the gospel in your life. Romans 10, 13 says, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? So what I see simply in this text, when Jesus began his ministry, he began to evangelize. But he did it for a purpose. He evangelized. He gathered his community through evangelism for discipleship. So turn with me to Matthew. It's a parallel passage. But Matthew gives us a little bit more information. Verse 17. He says the same thing. From that time Jesus began to preach. Saying what? What's the word? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But notice what comes next. While walking by the sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers Simon. Verse 19. What did he say to them? Follow me. And I will make you what? Fishers of men. Verse 22, it says, immediately they did what? They left the boat. Who else did they leave? They left their following. They did what? They followed. And you see, evangelism brings discipleship. There's clear in the text. I'm asking you just to look at it and see what it says. There's evangelism here. There's a call. There's a mission. And there's a cost. This is what we call people to. Not some pray the prayer. Write it in your Bible and you're okay. He's calling them to follow him. He's calling them to a mission. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he's calling them to a cost. Leave everything you've ever known, including the patriarch of your family, and follow me. We're going to look at that next week because we don't have a clue what that means in our context. Called him Following Christ meant leaving him. It meant he, they left their career and their father. It's no small deal in that day. Follow me and I will teach you the family business. They did. You see, evangelism is the door to discipleship. It's not the end. It's the beginning. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's no more biblical for you to give someone the gospel and not give them you than it is to give them you and not give them the gospel. This is both together. Listen, don't partake in all of this back and forth that said, said that somehow I must elevate the word and leave off deed or I must elevate deed and leave off the word. God has called us to both. 
Evangelism brings discipleship. And discipleship has a context, you see. An evangelist would move into an area and bring the gospel to bear, and he would not leave until the gospel had taken root, or in other words, they could fish. He didn't fly in on a plane, get a bunch of a couple thousand converts, and go to the Waffle House and talk about how good a job he did. He didn't. When he, they evangelized, that was a starting point for discipleship. So, we see, just by the text, he gathers community through evangelism for discipleship into a small community. I mean, isn't that what we see? He's calling individuals to follow him. How many did he gather? He gathered 12 intentionally. We're going to look at the concentric circle. But these were, and this, this is important, you see. Normally, from a rabbi to his students, a child would go through his bar mitzvah and he showed promise and he was studies and he was really doing well. He would submit himself to a rabbi. And if he did, the rabbi would have to pick him. And so he would go through very scrutinous tests and all this. And then the rabbi would say, you, you, you. Notice this was a paradigm shift here because Jesus sought out with intention his followers. He sought them out. There's something we can learn. And understand this is important because this is not, our culture is not this way. Someone gets called into ministry, we send them to seminary. But understand the context. And I'm not knocking that. I'm just telling you, you've got to understand the context for this to make sense this morning. The Hebrew way was life on life, nose to nose studying, small groups. This is the way they learned. They would follow him. In life, they learned. It's life oriented discipleship. So understand this this morning. We call them growth groups here. Our community groups. But you understand this this morning. Based off what I see in the Bible. The first thing Jesus did when he began his ministry. He started a growth group. This small group was distinct from the large group. Turn with me to Luke 6. Luke 6. This is all over the place. As a matter of fact when you start doing this. I even had to leave off some of the text. Because there's just so many. And all of them have a purpose. This is why you can, never, you can never get tired of studying the life of Christ. What I'm doing today, you can do on your own. You can do in a small group. Look at Luke 6. Look down at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. So, he's got his disciples to a level place. Look at the two groups of people. With the great crowd of his disciples... And a great multitude of people. So Jesus had a larger following. We're going to look at that. He deployed them on mission. We're going to, we're going to see that. But he had an intentional small group that, that he intentionally discipled. Life on life. There was always a multitude of people. They had all kinds of people that was there. There were, there were, there were doubters. There were the curious. There were the hungry. They were in the great multitude. There were those that were following him. They were his disciples. But inside of that, he had an intentional small group of people. Matthew 20, 17. Matthew 20, 17. 
I want you to see this morning that Jesus' small group had a priority in his life. This is what I'm just saying. You see, and I, I would just challenge you. Give yourself a time. You'll be surprised how much of the gospel you can read in one setting. Just look for this. Here's, one, here's just one case. And Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve aside on the way, and he spoke to them. This was his regular way he did. These were his intentional group of people. He pulled them aside, and he worked with them, and he discipled them in an individual, personal, intentional way that's distinct from the larger group. Nothing shows this more than Mark chapter 3. We're going to see this text again. This text will come up again next week. I just want you to see what priority means. Mark 3.32 And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We're going to look at this in detail next week, but, but understand this for sure. What he is saying is these group of people have my loyalty, they have my allegiance, they have my time, they are my priority. This is my new community. Here's the principle, brothers and sisters. The smaller the group, the more intentional it can become. I'm not saying this because I've read a book. I'm saying this because it's what I see in Scripture. So, here's what I had to learn. <laughs> if you teach a growth group or a Sunday school or any kind of small group and you try to do that, what you will eventually run into is that people do not make it a priority. And so you will study and you will labor and you will prepare and nobody shows up. Maybe one couple or one person. And I it used to, and it still does. You need to understand it's very discouraging to someone who prepares for a lesson. It is. <laughs> but here's what I learned. I can be more intentional now. We can really... We can really accomplish something. So, so I just say, hey, the smaller the group, the more intentional it becomes. And I see this in Jesus' life, that he had these small group of men, and he was intentional with them. And so he gathered them into a group for the purpose of discipleship, and there he discipled them. I want you to just see a couple things. Turn with me to Mark if you're already there. Mark chapter, chapter 4. I just want you to see something. Says, I want you to see large group, small group. I want you to see just what we see in Scripture. Jesus' disciples, both how he preached and how he taught. And listen, they're not the same. If you're a growth group leader, God has not called you to preach to them. That's not teaching. What do we see here? Look at, look at chapter 4. Look at verse 1 and 2. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got in the boat and set it out to sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on land. And he was teaching them and many things in parables. And so he taught the parable, taught the parable of the sower here. And, but 
Look down at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, so it wasn't just the twelve. These were people who wanted to understand. So they're lingering in this small group. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom. Look at verse 13. He said to them, do you understand this parable? That's really important. So if you're not in a growth group, you're not in a small group of people that discuss the sermon, you're not going to get this question. Did you understand the message? What was he saying? What did he mean? This is what Jesus is doing. You say, I'm just saying what I'm seeing here this morning. Jesus taught a larger group and he taught them generally. But it was in this small context that through question and answers, he begins to both explain things because if you don't understand it, you can't apply it. So he explained it. His purpose of the small group was explanation and application. He asked them, 13, did you understand? Look at verse 33 and 34. With many words, he spoke the words to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he did what? what is he explained everything. You see, that's the intentional purpose of the smaller groups that Jesus was around Jesus. This is how he discipled them. It's how he taught them. He also taught them through how he modeled. Turn with me to Luke. You see what we're doing? You can do this, brothers and sisters. It's simply looking at the text and saying, what do I see? What do I see? I want you to see from Luke 4, Jesus discipled, he taught, he made it followers by how he modeled. Luke chapter 4. Anybody got a subtitle? Look down at verse 16. Anybody got a subtitle, a heading over the top of that? What does it say? Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Now, I don't have time this morning, but if you look at all of the, everything in context, all of the gospel, Jesus' disciples are already called to him at this point. What, is he, what happens here? Remember, he preaches the gospel to his own hometown, and they what? They not only reject him, you remember, they want to throw him off a cliff. So here's a question. This could help you this morning. Is rejection failure? It, was there something deficient in our Jesus in this situation? No, you see. Rejection is not a failure. Rejection was exactly what was supposed to happen. And his disciples saw not only this rejection of our Lord, but they saw verse 31. Look down there. What did he do? He goes on teaching. <laughs> he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and there he was teaching. He went about teaching. Verse 34, he cast out a demon. Verse 38, he went to Peter's mother-in-law and healed her. So let me ask you, in this life-on-life life small group, what did they learn through that? That gathering people, you're going to face rejection, especially from those who are the closest to you. James and Jude did not believe. 
until after the resurrection. His own family, his own hometown, and yet what did he model? Perseverance. My father gave me a mission. I'm going to be it, so let's go. We're going somewhere else. He modeled compassion. Didn't stop caring because he had just been rejected. He was about his father's business. But listen, the context of this is critical. This is life-on-life discipleship as it happens. And if we're not in each other's life, we won't see it when it happens. Jesus discipled through how he taught, how he preached, how he modeled, and how he served. Mark 10. The context of this is so important because we've read this text many times. Look at verse 35, Mark chapter 10. Do you remember, somebody tell me, James and John made a request here. You see it on the subtitle. What did they want? Somebody tell me. Remember? (laughs) Hey, we know you like us a little bit more, so hey, let me ask you a question. I didn't make the rest of them very happy, remember? You see what I'm saying? Teaching moments happen in real life. This is when they happen. This was a teaching moment. They just said something stupid, really dumb. And he says, hmm, teaching opportunity. Whether you're a parent or an employer, or in a growth group. This is when it happens. So what did he do? Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him. They're not very happy with each other right now. <laughs> they all wanted to beat up James and John. So he calls them to him. And he said, you know that you are considered rulers of the Gentiles and lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority. Well, then look at verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on his way to serve them and us. You remember, he took off his tunic, he tied a robe, and he washed their feet. He modeled being a servant. All the way to the cross. Here's the question. All this is done intentionally and primarily in this small group of men. So let's just get the elephant in the room out because I've heard it a thousand times. I've heard it more in student ministry than anywhere else. Jesus have cliques? I mean, is this a clique? You know how many times I've heard that when finally and someone begins to disciple someone else? They say, well, you're discipling my child, that child, that you're not discipling mine. We don't understand discipleship. Usually that complaint comes from someone who's not making disciples. What is a clique? It's important. A small, close-knit group of people who do not readily allow others to join them. That's what a clique is. And listen... We live in a small town. 
Let's all own it, whichever small town you live in, because there's several around here, and small towns are a little cliquish. What does that mean? We don't accept outsiders very easily, right? Anybody want to be honest? That's true. Give yourself about three or four years, and just maybe they'll look at you when you're ordering your food. <laughs> Churches are that way, too. You ever been in one? Everybody looking around going, what is that? You know him? Is he some kin to somebody else? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah. Sitting over there by himself, nobody ever says anything. That is. That's exactly what that is. We would just assume stay all together until we all die. Yes, that's a click. That's not what Jesus is doing. We need to engage this conversation and say, hello, what were the job they were training for? What did he give them to do? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of what? You don't do that in a click. Clicky churches do not evangelize, nor do they make disciples. They just love each other to death. Discipleship's not about cliques. It's about family. Gathering them and discipling them. And I have to say this because of the age we live in. That you better believe that we expect and demand and live in above reproach in the midst of this discipleship because there is sinful people that begin to infiltrate this church. And so if you're going to work with our kids, if you're going to work with our students, you're going to be background checked, you better believe it. And we're going to practice accountability and wisdom in the way we disciple. Absolutely. Your pastors have been background checked, by the way. (laughs) We do it. We do it with wisdom. But we do not respond in fear. grieves me the most about all this with the Catholic Church is it puts disdain on the name of the church and we get associated with those who victimize those they were supposed to disciple and care for what do we see Jesus doing we see him a small group of people of men disciple them but that's not all he was doing he cared for this group of he, he cared for this new community holistically. I, want you, I just want you to see this, this one little place. In reality, we probably, Mark 6, 30, we probably don't know all the different ways Jesus loved on the disciples. Remember this context. In Mark 6, he had sent out the twelve. They'd been on mission, exciting things, God saving, healing, all this good stuff. They're excited on a spiritual high. They get back, and then what do they do? They get a message that that Herod had just cut off the head of John the Baptist. And at this moment of both wonderful, they get tragedy. Mark 6, verse 30. Jesus said to him, verse 31, Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. So what do we learn from Jesus just by what that says? Jesus cared about them. He cared about what they were going through. Both their emotional and their physical health was his concern. And so he told them, "Let's, let's get some rest. 
But amen, I mean, anybody that knows is in, is, that goes through the life of ministry know that you might punch a clock at your job, but you never punch a clock at ministry because <laughs> they turn around and go get some rest and ministry's in front of them. And notice what Jesus does. He not only cares and has compassion for the crowd, he cares and has compassion for his people. Jesus desired rest. Jesus fed his disciples. And then you remember what happened next? Verse 50 and 52, they get through, they send the crowd. He's, he's, Jesus said, I'm going to send the crowds away. You get in the boat. What do they end up getting into? A storm, you remember? What happened in verses 50 and 52? Jesus comes and says, don't fear, it's just me. He rescued. So Jesus cared for him physically. He desired rest for him. He feeds them. He rescues them. And he cared for them spiritually too. It's one of the the, the precious moments in the scripture. I'm so glad it's here. John 14. John 14. It's getting down to the end here with his disciples. And he keeps telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to betray me. And they were troubled. It's not the way it's supposed to go. I don't, we don't understand. And look at, look at the way he loves his, his disciples. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let your, not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen to the way he loves his people. This is how we comfort God's people. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. And I go to a prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you where? What does it say? Talk to me. To myself. That where I am, you may be. Comfort them with this. See, you've got to understand the context for this to make any sense. We don't understand the context. And how many years do we think, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get a big mansion. I'm sitting there going, hello, context. <laughs> you may not want to live above your parents, but the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people did. This is the way community worked. I'm going, here's how he's comforting. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare your room over my room and I'm going to come back and get you and you're going to be with me. That's how he comforts his people. He loves them that much. He loves you that much. He wants to spend eternity with you. Can't get any more comforting and loving than that. He comforts them with proximity. He'll be close to me. He discipled them. He loved them. And listen, he intentionally deployed them. He didn't just deploy the twelve. Turn with me to Luke. Luke 10. Verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him two by two into the town and a place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them. So let me ask you something. If Jesus deployed these 72, him being a perfect teacher, would he deploy them and not train them? Mm-mm. So make no mistake. Jesus was was discipling and preparing people 
greater than just the twelve. But then in Mark 6, we see him deploying the, the twelve. Remember, that was the context for them being tired. He deploys them in Mark 6, and 7 to 13, they go out. And when they come back, they report back to him. He prepares them. You see, this is the way it works. Jesus went about preaching and healing after he called them, and they watched him. And as time went on, Jesus began to let them be about mission, and he watched them. And then he deploys them. This is leadership development. This is discipleship. All from right here in the scripture, from the life of Christ. But let's remember Matthew 4, 19. Because Jesus not only deployed the 72, he not only deployed the 12, but in employing, deploying the 12, he deploys us. Remember Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's teaching a very simple principle here. Every follower of Christ is a fisher of men. That's the mission. He calls you to follow. Discipleship is about following Christ. The mission accomplishes the purpose. The purpose is to glorify God through gathering people. Every follower of Christ. You remember, there was only one of the twelve who didn't do that. And he proved to be an unbeliever. So Matthew 28, verse 16. We know this well. I'm not going to preach this text now. I just want you to see it. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped it. Some doubted. But Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We know this. We should know this. We have preached this before. We will preach it again. That the primary imperative in this text is what? Make disciples. That's the primary imperative. Go, baptize, and teach. Modify the primary imperative. And because they modify it, imperative is a command. Because they modify it, they carry the weight of it. Make disciples is in the middle. So hear me today. The strategy of Jesus to accomplish the purpose and the mission of God was to make disciples. This is how the gathering is going to happen. But don't, we miss the purpose this morning and the point of the text. Yes, discipleship is just helping other people follow Jesus. My point this morning is not to tease that out this morning. My point is to understand. Do you understand the context of that statement? There's a context. And it's the community of faith. The context is not merely an individual one. The context is to be lived out with each other. This is how we do it. We need to understand this because if, if we don't understand the last three years of Jesus and the disciples' life that led up to this statement, we will not understand the statement because we don't understand its context. 
Its context was this small group of people who shared life with each other to disciple each other. And then Jesus deployed them on mission and said, you go do likewise. And see if you understand that the context in Acts 2, 42 to 47 will make perfect sense. And when we see the church began to live in community and no one had any need and they had a focus, they had an intention. Why? Because they had the same intention Jesus did. Their priority was each other. Because their mission was to glorify God together to make sure that no one failed. My question this morning is, are your priorities the same as the Lord's? The Lord could have spent his three years doing all kinds of things, but his priority was a small group of people. Living life with them, loving them, discipling them, commissioning them. We know this. Our family gets the priority. Here's my question this morning. Who's your family? Who's your family? The Bible clearly shows us this morning that Jesus considered the community of faith his family. How can I do this? Philippians 2. It's not in your notes. I added it on the screen. Just... There again, context is everything. Paul's in jail, writes to the church. Philippians 2 verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation and fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, listen, this is the practical this morning, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look after not only its own interests, but also the interests of others. Listen to this. Have this mind yourself, which is yours in Christ. Yours. Look at the model. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we, as God's people, as God's church, just like the church in Philippi, are reminded this morning that to live in the community means that I prefer you over what's comfortable for me. And in that, we are all built up together in his word, in love, and in good works. So the purpose of Battleground Community Church is to glorify God. We're going to do this through how we worship together, how we grow in biblical community together, and how we go with the gospel to all believers together. Here was a great text, and it meant so much to me studying in Revelation 5. It paints this picture of John watching this situation unfold to where there's a seal and no one can open the seal and he starts weeping and one of the elders says, no, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered 
He can open it. Listen to this. Verse 6, Romans 5. And between the throne, there's a glory here. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out all into all the earth. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nations, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I know no greater privilege this morning than to be able to stand here with the ransomed of God And to give myself for them. This is what he has called us to. You get the privilege of telling some suffering saint. That there is not one of your prayers that has ever fell to the ground. Our God has them. And they are meaningful and they are purposeful. And here they are right here. I know no greater privilege than gathering God's people from all over the world, discipling them, loving them, because we will be with them and each other forever. Lord, what a message that we see in Jesus today. Lord, may we be so bold as to hit the pause button In our everyday and say where are my priorities. How do I do this God. Lord may we die to ourselves. So that we may love you more. And we love you more when we love your church more. Help us Lord I pray. And now Lord. May we get to fulfill our purpose. To glorify you now. Through worship. Receive our worship. In Jesus' name, stand with us.